I've known Jesus Christ as my personal Savior and worshiped Him as my King uh, for a long time. But some days I, I wrestle right at this point. God, are you really there? Will we really see you and be with you? But I love the way this question asks, turns that a little bit. Does our God intend to dwell with us? How can we know the answer to that question? How can we be sure there is a positive answer to that? Well, the Bible holds it for us. And I want to ask you, as we begin a little three-part Christmas series this morning, to go to the prophecy of Isaiah. It's found in the Old Testament. And if you're using one of the Bibles that uh, are scattered throughout the auditorium this morning on those book racks underneath, and I'm using one myself because I left my Bible at home. Can you believe that? Thankfully, I've got sermon notes. I've got electronic copies of the Bible, but I just like to have a printed copy in front of me. I also left my other shoes at home, so I'm preaching in snow boots. That's a first for me. Uh, and if, well, there, there are several other things that I have forgotten to bring with me this morning. I won't bore you with all those details, but um, it's just even a little microcosm. That's demonstration that I feel the world is broken uh, in which I live. But anyhow, open your Bibles to Isaiah 7. And if you're using one of these church Bibles provided for you, you'll find this on page 571. Now, Isaiah is the longest Old Testament prophecy. It's actually, I think, the longest book in the Bible, aside from Psalms, which is a collection of songs, um, but 66 chapters. And Isaiah has quite a remarkable story of his life and ministry and prophecy. It spanned over four kings, and uh, he had some of the most glorious visions ever given to any man who lived on planet Earth. He also died a martyr's death, according to church history, sawn in two, a horrific thing for such a godly man. But in the middle of his prophecy, his world, the, the society that he was a part of, was described with words, as we're going to see in a couple of scriptures this morning, deep darkness, gloom. And it was mostly of a spiritual nature that he's talking about. Some of it was political, some of it economic, but the, the real darkness that had settled over Isaiah's world and the nation that he was a part of was of a spiritual kind. And when we open this particular passage of scripture... It had been a little over five years since Isaiah had been transported by the Spirit into the throne room of heaven. And that vision is captured in Isaiah 6. That's the famous, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the, the, the eternal and angelic witness just cries over and over of God's holiness. Isaiah sees that and he feels himself to be undone. And that's why he says, woe is me, I'm undone. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I myself am unclean. So it's been a little over five years since Isaiah had been transported by the Spirit into that vision, into the throne room of heaven. And though the splendor and majesty of the Holy One of Israel would always be a vivid memory for him in his prophetic ministry, the spiritual decline of the years since then has been, has been this precipitous drop. Because he saw the Lord in the year that King Uzziah died. And Uzziah was really the last of the kings uh, over Judah, and, and he governed in a golden era. He was a man who followed God, and aside from the, 
the one grievous sin he committed toward the end of his life that God disciplined him for, Uzziah's life was characterized by the fear of the Lord. His son Jotham takes his place, and Jotham too is a man who walks in the fear of God and tries to lead the nation of Judah uh, in, a, in a right worship of God. But the people are corrupt. And when Jotham dies, his son Ahaz takes his place, and Ahaz has no heart for God. As a matter of fact, there's a portion in 2 Chronicles 28 that describes the reign of Ahaz and his life. Listen to these words. Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as his father David had done. But, listen to this, he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even made metal images for the Baals, and he made offerings in the valley of Hinnom and burned his sons as an offering. Can you fathom? What happens to a man that he becomes so corrupted in spirit and in soul and in perspective that he believes it's a good thing to take his little Boys who are descendants of the great King David, they are heirs of the Davidic promises, they stand in line to assume the throne to bring in the eternal reign of Messiah, and he offers them in sacrifice to idols. He sacrificed these sons according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offering on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Therefore, the Lord his God gave him into the hand of the king of, Assyri of Syria, who defeated him and took captive a great number of his people and brought them to Damascus. He was also given into the hand of the king of Israel. Remember, it's a divided nation at this point. The northern kingdoms, Israel, have their own king. Judah, under the reign of Ahaz, has their own kingdom established. But God gives Ahaz into the hand of the king of Israel, who struck him with great force. For Pekah, that's the king of Israel, the son of Remaliah, killed 120,000 from Judah in one day, all of them men of valor, because they had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. Now, one other little wrinkle on this, there's a superpower in the Middle East at this time, Assyria, not to be confused with Syria. It's a different nation. And their king, who has one of the most interesting names, I think, in all of ancient Near East history, Tiglath-Pileser III, Sounds funny to our ears. They'd probably say, you know, like, my name, Danny. What's that? Um, but he was a brutal king. And he was expanding his control into neighboring countries. And he'd already invaded Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel. And he was on the threshold of, of Judah. And it was obvious that his intent was to conquer the entire area and to subject all of it to his godless rule. And in resistance to the Assyrian Empire, regional coalitions were forming, and Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, king of Israel, had already come together, and they were putting pressure uh, on Ahaz at this particular point. But Ahaz has his own idea, and so he goes straight to Tiglath-Pileser and brokers a deal. Because he's thinking, if I can keep the big bully in the Middle East happy, then, then maybe that'll work out for our benefit. And so Ahaz through diplomacy, seeks to establish this alliance and avoid being conquered. And when we come to Isaiah 7, 
the Lord is actually sending Isaiah to step into the middle of this big mess and speak to Ahaz. To speak to a man who really, I, I think there is little evidence that would prove he was a converted man. He's not a man of faith, as we will see. But God has great mercy because it's not just about Ahaz. There are many, many, many people alive. Isaiah is one of them who need to know, does our God intend to dwell with us? Is there any hope for us in the middle of this broken society of which we're a part? So let's begin reading in verse 1. In the days, this is Isaiah 7, verse 1. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. And the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim. So Ephraim is another name for the northern kingdom of Israel, okay? I don't want you to be confused there. Syria is in league with Ephraim. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook at the tree as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. At the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand. And it shall not come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol, or you could even say as the grave. The place of the dead, let it be as deep as that secret, unknown place, or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. You know, we are familiar with verse 14 the promise of a son whose name is Emmanuel. And we sang this truth through several uh, of our hymn selections this morning. And we think of this, rightly so, as one of the greatest Christmas promises ever given. But I want to make sure that we understand the context in which this promise is given because it was a day of deep darkness, as Isaiah describes back in chapter 5. And it's much like the day in which we live. 
And the fulfillment of this promise would not come for many hundreds of years later. Now, I think there was some fulfillment of this particular prophecy in Isaiah's lifetime. And we could study that out a little further. But this is a story not just of a faithless king, of godless rival nations who had assumed power and were hungry for more. It's not just a story of fearful people who are wondering, how are we going to make it in our day-to-day existence? It's not even just the story of a great prophet, a faithful prophet, maybe even the greatest prophet in Israel. It's the story of God acting and working according to his sovereign purposes and according to his saving plan. And so in the middle of this mess, one of the greatest Christmas promises ever given to humankind is given, and it's given for us in our generation. So what Isaiah and many people in his day were asking is the same thing we are asking in our day. Does our God intend to dwell with us again? Because we're between the two Advents, aren't we? We refer to Christmas as Advent season. And the word Advent has to do with an appearance, an arrival. And we believe that Jesus came 2,000 years ago, right? Born in Bethlehem, born of a Virgin Mary, in fulfillment of this very prophecy. But he only lived here for 33 years. Died a horrific death rose from the dead, but then ascended on high. And here we are, the the present generation in a long line of generations who have said, does our God intend to dwell with us again? He's promised, but where is he? How do we know that he'll come a second time? Well, we know it in part because of what God says right in this particular passage. So let's work our way through Isaiah 7 this morning and notice some things uh, about God's word of assurance, first of all. A word of assurance given to fearful, uncertain people. It is assurance, first of all, for fearful people. Such a vivid description for us, I think, even uh, even in this setting. Look at verse 2. When that immediate threat came upon them, they shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. I'm sure all of you, I mean, unless you are only recently arrived, all of you have been up in the canyons when the winds have begun to blow, maybe a storm has come through. Um, Sometimes it could just be a beautiful day, but there's a strong wind rolling over the mountaintops, down through the canyons, down through the aspens and cottonwoods and fir trees and spruce and all of that. And if you're out there, by yourself and and you realize this is a stronger wind that I'm comfortable with and you have no power to stop it and those trees around you are just shaking in that wind. That is a vivid description of the kind of fear that these people felt. Now, I don't know that I've been so fearful in my life that I've just been shaking. I mean, there have been a few moments where I had, you know, maybe uh, almost a, a fun kind of fear, you know, whether it be going through some kind of scary haunted house in my younger days or Uh, at a moment where adrenaline was coursing. But I don't know that I've ever been so fearful that I might die in the next moment or day or month that I was trembling physically. Well, these people had reason to tremble because the, the enemies that were on the doorstep were not kind. And they were coming to occupy and control by military force. There was no diplomacy in it. And so their fears are founded because the threats against them are real. And it's to these fearful people that God comes with a word of assurance. Now look at verse 4 because there are four parts, uh, effects, if you you will, of the assurance. And it ought to result, when God speaks to us, it ought to result in similar things. And the first is this, 
God says through his prophet to Ahaz, be careful, that is, be on your guard. So that's an acknowledgement. The threat is real. He doesn't minimize it. Number two, be quiet. That is, I actually want you to, to display quietness. And then he says, do not fear. That is, don't let your heart be in awe of them, even though it looks awesome. And finally, he says, do not let your heart be faint. Don't, don't grow soft in your resolve. Now, how can God say that? Because it almost appears as if he is minimizing the reality of the threat on the doorstep from Rezin and Pekah and even Tiglath-Pileser, who's kind of hanging back in the wings at this particular point. And, and, and then there's also the reality of the spiritual darkness and distress that is upon them. But I don't think God is minimizing any of that. Rather, he's calling Ahaz and all of the people who hear this word of prophecy to focus not on the immediate enemies, not on the immediate distress, but to focus on him. And I was thinking just yesterday, sometimes the only difference between uh, a strong faith and an overwhelming fear is what you look at. And I, I live in this tension nearly every day, I, I feel like. Because there are always circumstances that are so far beyond my understanding or my control or the pressure seems so great that they would logically and understandably result in things like fear. You go to the doctor's office for what you think is a regular checkup and by the time you've left, I mean, he's ordered additional tests and said, you know, there's something serious going on here that concerns me. And you walk out of the office thinking, where did this come from? And your heart is overwhelmed. There's a financial decision that, that has broken, maybe in terms of your business or in terms of your household, and you're saying, I, I was trying to do everything right, and yet this client is domino effect because he didn't pay on time, and then she didn't step up and, and, and resubmit the bill, and now we're at this point where we have a cash flow crisis. Or relationally, you thought things were great in your household and then maybe your spouse or a child or someone shows up and announces news that you just didn't see coming and it devastates you. So we don't want to separate ourselves from these people, from Isaiah's generation asking as if, well, that was a different time and different circumstances, a different kind of fear, different kind of need. No, it's the same kind of stuff that just hits you in the gut and lays you low and causes you to tremble. And if you're looking at those kinds of circumstances exclusively, you're going to be left shaking like the trees in the canyon when a big wind blows. God doesn't want us to stay at that particular point. So he, he brings a word of assurance. And, and those four parts, when he says to people like us, be careful, so stay on guard, but be quiet. Just take a breath, calm down. Do not fear and do not be faint. It's tied to an assurance that he gives based on his sovereign knowledge and his absolute control of all things. You say, where are you getting that? Well, look at verse 4 again. He says those four things because he knows the true character of these enemies. And look at what he calls them. These two smoldering stumps of firebrands. Any of you building fires, whether in your fireplace or your stove, is that, is that still legal? I mean, if we put a burning ban in place, I have to be careful about that. Our, our, we have two fireplaces in our house, but the chimneys are 
stuffed full of insulation. It was that way when we bought it a year and a half ago, and I just haven't bothered to have anybody come check it out. I mean, I would love to have a real fire going, but we're, we're not. Been anybody building fires lately? Do it in your backyard? Maybe for fun, or you're burning up a little yard waste. But how much attention did any of you go give the last dying embers of the last fire that you built? And did any of you stand there and say, that is scary? <laughs> you know, there's a, there's a potential forest fire raging there. Could just burn up the whole valley. Whole Wasatch Range could be gone because of that little ember. <laughs> That's kind of what God is saying. He's saying to Ahaz and the people, you're, you're shaking like leaves in the wind because of these two little embers. And then proceeds to say, in 65 years, Pekah, for sure, will be a distant memory. As a matter of fact, his whole kingdom will not even exist. God knows all things, and he controls all things. Because what he proceeds to unfold in this passage is that he himself will actually bring discipline against Israel and, and bring their kingdom to an end. And he doesn't seem to be concerned at all about Rezin and his future in Syria. And he says very simply in verse 7, here's the end of those two. It shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. We hear things that alarm us, don't we? I, I, I'm at a place where I'm just, I know the elections are important, but I think to myself, if I hear one more person say two years out or four years out, this is the most important election of our lifetimes, I may scream. Because I remember hearing that. The first time I remember hearing those words uh, was when Jimmy Carter was president and Ronald Reagan was running. You know, and if we let Jimmy Carter have another term, it would be the end of the world. That, that's what I was hearing in the conservative South, you know, Republican stronghold there. You know, Ronald Reagan did get elected, which I do think was a good thing. But guess what? His time was up, and then again it was, this is the most important election of our lifetime. Every candidate. And... Really? It's like, when will we learn? There's a God in heaven, the God of Isaiah 6, who is eternally seated on his throne. And his worship, his, the, 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 the Spotify list of heaven, if I can put it that way, is perpetually holy, holy, holy is the, is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Is, period. It's done. So there may be short-term consequences, and Ahaz and the others were experiencing some difficult circumstances, but in the end, God wins. And so this assurance he is offering to Ahaz and the fearful people is based on his sovereign knowledge and his sovereign control of all things. And that assurance that he is speaking into their world is what leads him to say, look at verses 13 and 14, if you are not or I'm sorry, uh, not verses 13 and 14, verse, end of verse 9. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. 
So God is saying to Ahaz and to others who are hearing this message, trust me. Now, Ahaz has to decide where he's going to put his faith. And we know from Chronicles and and other scriptures that fill in the story that Isaiah hasn't been led by the Holy Spirit to include here that Ahaz is actually negotiating some other deals on the side, isn't he? So while it may sound really spiritual in his part, like, oh, Lord, I'm I'm not going to put you to the test, it's a faithless response. He's been negotiating directly with Tiglath-Pileser, hoping that he can broker a deal that will keep him secure in his kingdom and, and maybe spare some people. But you know what? We do the same kinds of things, don't we? We'll sit in a service even like this with our Bibles open going, oh, God is great. He's sovereign. He knows all things. And, and then um, by you know, nightfall tonight, we'll kind of have laid all that aside of like, yeah, God is great and powerful and sovereign and all that, but I got this issue over here that I need to solve. And so we'll lean into our business experience or our training or our personal skills. And some of that may even include negotiating and, and, and trying to reach consensus. And, and it's like we totally forgot God is the one we need to trust in. You see, we have our own tiglath pleasers, if I can put it that way. A good question for all of us this morning is where are we putting our trust Maybe it's in your common sense. Maybe it is in your business training and your experience. Maybe it's your capacity to work hard. Maybe it's your capacity to build business, to recruit people. Maybe it's capitalism that's your functional idol. Maybe just trust in self. But if we trust in anything other than this living God, we're making the same mistake that Ahaz did. Now, look at what God does to, as he offers a sign. Um, tells Ahaz, these, these guys are like dying embers. Don't walk in fear of them. Their plans will not stand. And then verse 10, the Lord speaks to Ahaz through Isaiah, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. God offers a sign of very personal significance. Signs throughout the scriptures are really important moments. Some of the signs that God gave to Moses when he commissioned him to go back into Egypt and uh, lead his people to freedom at the Exodus. I mean, he, he said, uh, put your hand in your coat, pull it out, turn leprous, put it back in, it was healed. Throw your, your staff down, turns into a serpent, pick it up by the tail, goes back to being a stick. Those are powerful signs. Uh, if you'll remember, there were, there were many others through the Old Testament in particular who were given signs or experienced things. Gideon is one of the uh, the stories that children learn early on and many of us still hold dear in our hearts. God calls them to, you know, captain this really tiny army that's inadequate. Uh, and he asks for a sign. It's like, God, you got to prove it. If this is really you talking to me, uh, can you make the, you know, the fleece wet and the ground dry and then reverse it the next morning? Got to be really sure. And God in his kindness often meets people right where they are. So Ahaz has this unprecedented opportunity to ask for a sign. I wonder what you would ask for. I listened to a, a, a preacher who was teaching through this, and uh, he said that he, he would ask God to make him 18 years old again with all the wisdom that he presently has, you know, in his older age. I thought, that'd be a pretty cool sign. And, and then I get real spiritual and think, I don't know that I would ask God for that much. Maybe just overhaul my Yukon during the nights so when I walk out in the driveway in the morning. It's shiny and new and everything works, and, 
you know, the right lights come on and not the ones you're like, eh, I don't want to see that light. Um, what would you ask God for? I don't know. But God says, ask anything. And Ahaz refuses the offer. Verse 12, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. It sounded spiritual, but the truth is he is a man who doesn't want to live by faith. He'd rather live by his own wit, by his own plans. And as a matter of fact, 2 Kings records for us that Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. And he uses terminology that was really significant because kings in that day and age would often refer to themselves as the father of their people. That is, they not only assumed the authority of oversight, but they assumed the responsibility to provide for and care for and protect. And so when Ahaz sends a message saying to Tiglath-Pileser, I'm your son, that is a king bowing before another lord. And here he has the opportunity to bow in faith before the lord of eternity, but he opts out of it while bowing to the king of Assyria. And again, some of us are just like Ahaz, functionally. We make our own plans, we have our own Tiglath-Pileser's, and, and sometimes we even close this book up and say, well, you know, follow the Bible concerning marriage. That's kind of old and antiquated. I think, there, I think we know more in our generation. Follow the Bible concerning parenting and training up my children. Come on. And some of us would rather follow present day gurus that we respect than opening God's eternal word and bowing before him. And so we, like Ahaz, forge these alliances that for a moment give us a sense of security, but in the end will actually be our undoing. Do you know, according to 2 Chronicles 28, verse 20, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came against Ahaz and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. For Ahaz took a portion from the house of the Lord and the house of the king of the princes and gave tribute to the king of Assyria, but it did not help him. That's one of those wow moments. So prior to that happening, here's God in his kindness saying to Ahaz, don't fear those other kings. Don't negotiate. It's not explicitly stated, but there's something going on here where God is saying, trust me, let me be your rescue, your defense, and your salvation. And Ahaz says, no, I will not ask for a sign. But brothers and sisters, the same thing happens to us when we reject God's authority and we try to live life in our own way. And in the same way that Ahaz actually squandered not just the emblems of Israel's worship when he took treasures out of the temple and squandered those national resources, it actually led to him being impoverished and in subjection to a king who treated him harshly. And the same thing happens to us when we walk away from God. You're not rich enough to buy your way out of life's trouble. You are not religious enough apart from Jesus and the gospel and the God of the Bible to work your way out of difficulty. God stands before us in the same way and says, trust me. Now look at verse 14. Because God actually gives a sign. Even though Ahaz has refused it, he gives a sign, but he does it for the sake of the fearful but faithful generations. That's what I'll call them. They're fearful, but they are faithful ones like Isaiah. 
Now think how it would make you feel as a citizen uh, of this nation if in some of these recent negotiations our president, and for all his faults and foibles, uh, had actually brokered some deal with China and just actually gave them control of everything, economy, government, and suddenly we are, I mean, we are in a world of hurt. And, and then if you found out they actually had an opportunity to, to do really good stuff, I mean, you'd be exasperated. Well, I, I think these people must have been exasperated as word got out that Ahaz had refused God's counsel and the offering of a sign. But the Lord does not fail his people. And so he steps into the middle of this. And if, again, if in English it's, it's masked a little bit because uh, our personal pronouns, uh, when we use the word you, you could be using it singular, you. Good morning to you. And I speak to Stephen directly. Or I could say good morning to you. And I'm speaking to the whole assembly who are here today. And our English word doesn't distinguish singular from plural. But do you know in this text, God stopped speaking to Ahaz singularly, and now he says, I will give you all a sign. Oh, I love this. Because God's never going to let one rebellious knucklehead, if I can describe Ahaz in that way, prevent him from blessing the large assembly of his people. So he says, the Lord himself will give you all a sign. Syria, Ephraim, and Assyria do not pose a genuine threat to God's purpose, and not even Ahaz, through his unbelief and foolish actions, can undo God's eternal plan, not just to bless the people, but actually to bring Messiah into the world. Look at verse 14. So now we're finally to the Christmas promise. But it's given in this context, in this story. Here's the sign. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you all a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, we know the name Emmanuel means, very simply, God is with us. Now, that had been great consolation. I mean, just, again, you know the story, the context. We've been talking over and over, political threats, military threats, economic difficulties that were coming upon them. It'd be great assurance to know God is present with us. The question is, what child is this that has reference to? And some would look at the uh, historical context and say, oh, this is actually the next son that's going to be born to Isaiah, perhaps. But I'm going to leave that on its side because we don't have to wonder where this was ultimately fulfilled. And so now you need to go to the New Testament and to the Gospel of Matthew. Remember, Matthew is one of the first disciples to follow Jesus Christ, formerly a tax collector. He would have been a man hated by Jews and not really respected by Romans in his own day, but Jesus called him to follow him. And when Matthew begins to tell the story of Jesus Christ in Matthew 1, and if you're trying to find this again in in one of the church Bibles, page 807, in Matthew 1, verse 21, Matthew begins to tell us that as part of this story of Mary conceiving a child by the Holy Spirit and of the angel telling Joseph who this child would be and what his name would be called, we pick it up in verse 21. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Now listen, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And here's the staggering part of this. It's not simply that God gives a word of assurance to the faithful yet fearful people of Isaiah's day saying, I'm with you spiritually. He was. I'm with you prophetically through my servants like Isaiah. That was true. The ultimate fulfillment is that God actually descends from heaven, enters the world, and becomes one of us. God is with us as we are. That is a staggering and unexpected miracle. I think we all would have been really content if God had just come down in his glory and made his dwelling in our midst. But why would he become a human? Well, because the, the darkness and depth of darkness in Isaiah's day, in the first century when Jesus was born, and even in our day, is much greater than just political or economic darkness in it. It's spiritual darkness that is in us. We sometimes think of that if we could just get away from the bad culture around us, we might be safe. You know why culture is so bad? Because people create culture by their choices, and the badness is in the people. And you could go live in the high mountain somewhere by yourself, but you know what? Sooner or later, you'd realize, I'm living in just a corru as corrupt community all by myself as I left behind me in Salt Lake, because you carried all that darkness with you. The problem of our world is not that, that the cultural currents need to be stemmed and we need to hit a reset button and just all agree we're going to be better people than we've been. No, we need to be changed from the inside out. And the only way for that sin problem to be remedied is if the sin could be paid for and cleansed away, washed away, if genuine guilt could be removed, and then a new heart be given. And God, in His eternal wisdom, said the only way that can happen is if I become what you are and I die death as sinful human beings deserve to die. And I become your substitute. And as I die, I take away all of that guilt and all of that condemnation, all of that punch, punishment that you rightly deserve. And then, in this exchange, I take all of that and I give you all of my perfect righteousness. God is not simply dwelling with us. He is dwelling with us as one of us. Christmas is a big, big deal. Because that was the moment that Isaiah had prophesied about 730 years before. And what hope did he have that will God come to make his dwelling with us? God promised, but God fulfilled it. And now we in our generation say, will he come again to make his dwelling with us? It won't be like the first time. It's a whole different scenario. He's going to come to judge the world. He's going to come to rule and establish that eternal throne that we all long for and fulfill all those other uh, promises that have been given. And, you know, part of the reason we hope and believe that that's coming is because we look back and say he fulfilled the first part. It's not just that God is present with us as a spiritual entity. 
God came to dwell with us as man. And you know what? He will always be a man forever. It's a staggering thought, isn't it? That God, dwelling in His perfect unity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and here we are, finite people again, trying to understand the infinite and the eternal, dwelling in perfect unity, in His wisdom, though, adds humanity to the Trinity by becoming man. And He did it to save us to rescue us. That's what was necessary to bring us home. And that's what he calls us to put our faith in. It's not just any virgin. It's the Virgin Mary that's in view. It's not just any son named Emmanuel. It's God's only one-of-a-kind Son. And the hope for our deep darkness today is that Jesus is that Son. As we conclude our, our time in the Word this morning, I want to ask just two basic questions. First of all, are you a present-day Ahaz? And by that I mean not simply that you're like trusting in your own wits and wisdom to get by in life. That, that's part of it. But actually... Have you refused God's one-of-a-kind sign? It may be up until this point. You've said, yeah, Christmas, is, I, I, it's a good season of the year, and I'm happy for all the celebration, but I don't really believe that this Jesus Christ I hear about was born in the way that some of you say he was. Oh, dear friend, we all admit it's a miracle. We all admit there's mystery here that we can't fully understand and wrap our little pea-sized human brains around. But you see, this sign that God gave through the birth of His Son is about your rescue. And if you refuse this sign, this one-of-a-kind sign that Jesus is born of a virgin and brought into this world, what, what else would you possibly hope in? Whatever you set your faith in is as futile and ultimately destructive as Ahaz's negotiations with Tiglath-Pileser. That actually turned into his destruction. And if you reject God's sign, Jesus, the Savior, you set yourself up for destruction. Believe. That's the word for you. Some of you believe that, and you have for a long time. But you're, you've gotten away from that. And even in a Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 kind of way, or I should say not the way that we're instructed there, you've begun to lean on your own understanding and, and you've just really kind of put Jesus on the side and God's an afterthought and you're secure enough financially right now and things are going well business-wise and family's in pretty good shape. In many ways, it's easy to say, I don't really need him. Oh, you can't stop trusting in him. And maybe this is a morning where you need to personally and very specifically say to the Lord, I'm coming home. Been trying to do it my way, and, and I see that there is destruction and hurt that awaits. God sent His Son to be eternally with us. And whether you've walked with Him for a long time in faith, or you say that would be the first step if I did what you're asking me to do today, this 
Christmas promise is given that you might know life. Would you bow your heads with me, please? What is the thing that the Lord desires for you to believe right now? Where are you putting your faith? If it's in anything other than Emmanuel, you're headed for trouble. Would you just pray quietly to the Lord right now and say, God, I see the dynamics of this story and I see that I'm a lot like Tiglath-Pileser. Please forgive me. Or I see that I'm a lot like Ahaz, putting my faith in Tiglath-Pileser. Please forgive me. If you would make that confession to him, he would forgive you. And then if you would just express your faith to him and say, I'm, I'm trusting you. I want Jesus as my king, my savior. I want you as my place of faith. He'd be all of that to you. Father, will you take your word and seal it to our hearts? Whatever I may have spoken that's just mere human opinion, just let that fall away, just melt away as some of the snow will in short order. Don't want any of that to be confusing. Would not want any of our man-made ideas or notions to obscure a right understanding and even vision of you and your greatness and glory. So we just let that work of the Holy Spirit continue as you know is best and right. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.